All right, Sean, episode three from the shotgun. We are live. How you doing tonight, buddy? You know, um, you would think after a week of Nevada football winning and the 49ers winning, I would be doing a lot better, but just coming out of game six of the World Series and the Dodgers won it, so I could be doing a bit better. I think we could all, as a country, could be doing a bit better after that, honestly, um, especially after watching that decision that Kevin Cash made, but that's here nor there. This is a football podcast. We leave them thoughts for a later date. So, speaking of football, pretty big week this week, I would say. Um, you know, we had some upsets come into play. We had some high-scoring close games, had some OTs, had some missed game-winning field goals. We'll talk about all that here in Episode 3 of From the Shotgun. But first and foremost, I'm going to bring up just some news that happened around the league this week, and we're going to start off with probably the uh, toughest part to start off with is with some of the key injuries that happened throughout the league during this past week. Uh, the first of which being Chris Godwin. He's going to miss a little bit of time again. It looks like he's only going to miss about a week or so. The Bucks got an upcoming game on Monday night against the Giants. Um, but it looks like Chris Godwin is going to miss at least that game. But it looks like he might be all right to come back for week nine. Uh, San Francisco 49ers wide receiver Debo Samuel. He's going to miss a little bit of time as well. About one to two weeks with an injury there. And Cardinals starting running back Kenyon Drake after he had a very good game against the Dallas Cowboys on Monday night last week. He's going to miss a few weeks with an injury as well. Sean, talk to me about those three injuries and what, what would you say the severity of each of the three are? Yeah, Godwin's a, Godwin's a big injury for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Despite having all those weapons, you know, with Gronkowski, who's seemingly back, and you have Mike Evans, who is consistently one of the best wide receivers in the league. And then you, you have some of Brady's favorite targets like um, Scotty Miller and Tyler Johnson who get a few catches a game. But Godwin is a really important piece of that offense. So I think that Brady not having that kind of safety blanket that isn't Rob Gronkowski, it'll be interesting to see how he does without him, even if it's just for a week. Um, like you said, it could be more. He's having surgery on a broken finger. So we'll see about that. It's kind of something to monitor. But I think it could potentially just be something to look at going forward if he does miss an extended period of time. As for Debo Samuel, I think this injury is huge for the 49ers. They don't really have a reliable receiver outside of Brandon Ayuk. Now that Debo is hurt, you know, you've got Kendrick Bourne who has had his struggles here and there, but he's a He's not a guy that is someone you can rely on, someone that Garoppolo can rely on. He does show flashes, especially in the red zone at times, but that's still big. And while you have George Kittle, it's still going to be interesting to see how, you know, Trent Taylor plays into the offense now, who was a big part of the 2017 offense that Garoppolo ran when he first came to San Francisco. But Debo, I think, is – what I was saying about Godwin in the safety blanket sense, you know, he's someone that runs a lot of jet sweeps and does a lot of things out of the backfield. And he's a guy that Garoppolo can throw two yards down the field to who can take it 20 yards with ease. So I think it's going to be interesting to see how they play or how Kyle Shanahan runs the offense without Debo Samuel and without Raheem Mostert. And now even without Jeff Wilson, who I bring up just to say that they are on Jarek McKinnon, Jamichael Hasty, who 
weren't even top three, you could argue, running backs on the depth chart coming into the season. So that'll be something to watch, especially with Seattle and Green Bay coming up in the next two weeks. And Kenyon Drake, I think that Chase Edmonds is on the better end of backup running backs in the league. Um, He's had a few pretty big games. He looked okay against Seattle. But I think that is an injury that the Cardinals might be able to survive just because, you know, in that Cliff Kingsbury offense, it's a lot of passing. It's mainly a passing attack. So unless they rely on Kenyon Drake for establishing the run, which I have never really seen, I think they can get away with chase Edmonds for a little while yeah and I think I agree pretty much with everything you said about all three of those guys with Godwin being Godwin and Samuel I should say being a few more being a little higher up in the severity of their injuries for their respective teams and then Kenyon Drake I'm going to talk about backup running backs as the show goes on I think Chase Edmonds did have a pretty good week against Seattle granted not a very good Seattle uh, run defense but I think he did show uh, flashes of greatness against the Seahawks this past Sunday night. So moving on to kind of the second biggest thing that happened this week was the kind of, I would say, surprising signing of Des Bryant to the Baltimore Ravens practice squad. And obviously, Des Bryant used to be arguably a top five, if not top three wide receiver in the league when he was with Dallas. But he comes back after a couple years off. And he's going to sign with the Ravens practice squad. Sean, I'm just curious to think, I mean, what are your thoughts about this signing? I mean, because like I said, I feel like it just really kind of came out of nowhere. Yeah, I mean, you know, we've seen some rumblings about Des Bryant returning. You know, he had that brief stint or if you want to even call it a stint with the Saints a couple years ago. But, you know, I mean... I don't know how much of an impact he's going to make if he makes one at all. He's 31. Had some injury issues, and the last time he played was 2017. So we don't even know what we're going to see from Des Bryant, especially in an offense with the Ravens that isn't really predicated on passing the football. It's a lot of running. And despite having guys like Marquise Brown and Devin DuVernay who are legit down the field speedsters, I don't know where or how Des Bryant would fit into that offense, especially because we have not really seen Mark Andrews get a ton of work this year. It's interesting and it's probably just a depth signing, but I don't really know what to expect from this, to be honest with you. Yeah, and Mark Andrews, I feel like, has been one of the more reliable end zone targets when the Ravens do decide to pass the ball, especially when they get down to the goal line. He's been one of their more reliable um, end zone targets for Lamar Jackson. But, you know, we kind of talked about it uh, last week in that, like you said, this isn't a very pass-heavy team. And Greg Roman has done an absolutely wonderful job with their offense, and they've still been able to put up the amount of points that they've been able to put up without Lamar Jackson, you know, chucking the ball down the field all too often. Yeah, exactly. And like you were saying with Mark Andrews in the red zone, maybe that's what they wanted to bring Bryant in for you know for most of his career he was the red zone target in all football I mean in 2014 he had 16 touchdowns 2013 he had 13 so maybe he's just kind of a red zone threat that they wanted to bring in see what he can do but yeah I don't see Greg Roman changing his offense all of a sudden because Des Bryant was brought in they're still going to be very run heavy with Dobbins and Edwards and Ingram and even Lamar so I like I said I don't know what to expect from this. It's interesting. It's good to see Des back in the league, but I don't know if he'll make that big of an impact. Yeah, I think obviously just sheer, uh, sheerly from the impact of it's Des Bryant, 
um, the popularity that he had on the Cowboys, his name alone. I think obviously that's what brought a lot of uh, hype to this news, but I'm kind of in the same boat with you in that I don't think a Des Bryant is going to bring much at the age that he's at. Uh, but then B, kind of also like what you said, I don't know even if he were to bring much, if he would fit in well with that Ravens offense. Moving on to kind of one of my big kind of overarching themes from the week as a whole, before we get into previewing these games, is holy cow, what a week it was for backup running backs. I mean, I just wrote down names of seven guys right here in Kareem Hunt, Giovanni Bernard, Jamal Williams, Chase Edmonds, Carlos Hyde, Jeff Wilson, Wayne Gold. I mean, those are seven guys right there that had just great weeks in fantasy, you know, coming off of the bench and stepping into a role that, you know, they're not usually used to stepping into. Which of those guys out of the backup running backs that you saw this week, Sean? I feel like I know the answer to this question, but which of those guys do you think had the best game amongst backup running backs this week. Listen, it, it's Jeff Wilson. I, I Not to be a homer here, but 100-plus yards, three touchdowns. You can't really ask for more out of a guy who, if everyone's healthy in that backfield, it might be the fourth-string running back with Cal Janahan's love for Tevin Coleman, which is still inexplicable. But, I mean, he got hurt, so it, it's that's tough for him after a career game. But – I kind of feel like any running back you plug into the Shanahan offense is going to explode at one point or another. We saw that with Matt Breida, Raheem Mostert, Jerick McKinnon a couple times this year, and next man up is Jermichael Hasty, I guess. But I, I also was impressed with Jamal Williams. You know, he's a guy who's been in the league for a while, mostly as a pass catching back. But with Aaron Jones out this week, he really showed out and Yes, I know the Texans defense is not very good, but still when you lose your your top running back and your offense can create for your backup running back who has never really been a rusher, first and foremost, it's impressive. And so kind of piggybacking off of the second dude that you mentioned, Jamal Williams, right into his game, which is the first game that we previewed last week. Let's talk first and foremost about Packers-Texans. Packers end up winning that game, final score 35-20 to down in Houston. Um, I think we were kind of both right on this game to an extent. I mean, I know I was saying that the Packers would win by double digits, but you also did bring up the fact that Deshaun Watson, he's always in the rearview mirror. And the Texans, the fourth quarter was the only quarter that the Texans ended up outscoring the Packers. They got shut out in the first half, but then actually outscored the Packers 20 to 14 in the second half alone. And I think the first dude that we got to talk about in this game, Sean Barnon, has to be Devontae Adams. I mean, what a game he had. Uh, 13 receptions, 196 yards, and two touchdowns. Um, clearly Aaron Rodgers' favorite target. And I'm going to deliver which what could possibly be uh, taken as a hot take to some. But I think Devontae Adams is the best wide receiver in the league, even when Michael Thomas is healthy. Wow. You know, I was just about to give you what I thought was a hot take about Devontae Adams. You know, it's kind of hard to argue that. You can make a case for any, in my opinion, you can make a case for any of Adams, Hopkins, Thomas, and Julio. I think those are those guys are in a tier of their own. I think that Devontae Adams is one of the best route runners in football, period. And, you know, with a guy like Aaron Rodgers throwing to you, it's it makes life a little easier. And it, it's good to see this turnaround from Adams because, you know, the first couple of years in the league, he kind of struggled with drops 
for a little while. So he he's really fun to watch. Um, now, regarding Adams, I'll give you my hot take on him. I think that Devontae Adams is the best receiver that Aaron Rodgers has ever had. That includes Greg Jennings, Jordy Nelson, Randall Cobb, Donald Driver. Thoughts? I would probably tend to agree, I think, because I feel like whereas all of those guys that you kind of just mentioned right there, they all had like bits and pieces of what Devontae Adams had, but Devontae Adams, he almost feels like, you know, the entire package of that. And I think one of the most important things is like what you mentioned is how great his route work, how great his route running is because, you know, um, and obviously it benef- he benefits quite a bit from Aaron Rodgers showing to him too. But when you see, you know, Devontae Adams get the ball a lot of the times, dude's wide open. And a lot of times, you, you, you know, one may tend to think, you know, why, why are the Texans, you know, leaving a dude like this that wide open? But it's just because his route running is just so freaking good. And I, I think I, I'm going to agree with you on that one. I think um, I think just kind of from that alone, his ability to get open, um, how he's improved over the years in his catching ability, and yeah, I, I think he's the full package. I tend to agree with you on that take, certainly. All right, good. I wasn't crucified for that take. That normally doesn't happen. But back to the back to the game itself. You know, we kind of talked about how this was going to be a little mini Aaron Rodgers revenge game after what Tampa Bay's defense did to him and 283 yards, four touchdowns. I mean, he was great. And like it, the Texans don't have a great defense, but even still Rodgers played practically flawlessly. And then you go over to the Texans offensive side of the football. They have no running game. You know, they traded DeAndre Hopkins, which, you know, we can talk about that for hours, I'm sure. But they traded DeAndre Hopkins for David Johnson. He was a part of that deal, and he really hasn't been getting it done, and Deshaun Watson was still great, 309 yards, two touchdowns. I mean, there's not much to say except uh, free Deshaun. Yeah, I'm I'm with you in there as far as how David Johnson's kind of been a letdown, not only this year, but, I mean, needless to say, kind of throughout his career. Um, and obviously, he's been, he's been hit with injuries here and there. Um, But, you know, he's not a guy that's going to average you like 70 rushing yards a game. I mean, he has scored three touchdowns on the ground. He had his first receiving touchdown this week uh, against the uh, against Packers. But I would say you kind of got to credit the Packers defense as well, because, you know, they've they've had one of the more sore rush defenses in the league. And they held just those two guys alone, David Johnson and Deshaun Watson, to just 80 yards on the ground. And I think you got to credit their defense in that regard because they were one of the worst rush defenses in the NFL coming into this game. And again, like I said, David Johnson isn't a guy who's going to get you 70, 80, 90 yards a game or so. But I think the Packers' rush defense played really well today, or on Sunday, I should say, in kind of holding down the Texans' ground game. Yeah, you know, honestly, to your point, I think that despite the start that the Packers have had and despite – going 13-3 and three and going to an NFC Championship game last year. I think that Mike Pettin is kind of fighting for his job at this point. The Packers, they have talent on the defensive side of the football. You know, you look at um, Jair Alexander, Preston Smith, 
Zadarius Smith, Kenny Clark. These dudes all have a lot of talent, and they're bad. They're like they're just not a good defense as a whole. And so I think it'll be interesting to see what kind of adjustments, if any, that Mike Pettin makes. And one point that I do want to bring up is last week in the Texans-Titans game, we had the Romeo-Cornell decision to go for it or to go for two instead of just kicking the field goal. And I want to <laughs> – uh, we saw a less aggressive Romeo-Cornell this week kicking a field goal in the fourth quarter to make it – to go from a three-score game to a three-score game. And, you know, he actually did that a couple times, too, in the second ca- in the second half. Because I was watching uh, – I was watching the NFL Red Zone channel, and, you know, they, they, you know, they went to the Texans game in multiple times. I was asking myself, well, the first time, because they're down 28-7, the first time, you know, I saw they're down 28-7, three possessions. And then, yeah, like you said, kick a field goal. You stay down three possessions. And then even on the following possession, after they had gotten a blocked punt and had excellent field position, only went seven plays and 11 yards, and they kicked another field goal there. Granted, did take them from three possessions to two possessions, so kind of a step up there. But I, I don't know. I think in both situations, you're playing against the Green Bay Packers and Aaron Rodgers. And you're down 28-7. You're at home in the second half. And I don't know. That just seems a little weak to me because they had scored a touchdown on their opening possession of the second half. And then, you know, a couple drives down the road on consecutive drives, they go back-to-back field goals. And I was kind of sitting there asking myself, I'm like, what the heck are they doing here? Like, I feel like, especially with where they're at in their record too, like that loss now put them at one and six. And so obviously they're one and five in that game. I don't know. I think you got to take a chance and you got to try and show your fans, your home fans, that you're willing to take the risk they put yourself back in that football game. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like you said, you're one in five at the time. You're playing the Packers who, outside of one game, have shown themselves to be an offensive juggernaut. And not even to mention that, as for Romeo Cornell, you're an interim head coach. You have nothing to lose. You're an interim head coach of a one in five team. You have nothing to lose, especially given the fact this is just icing on the cake that they don't have their first round pick. They gave it to the Dolphins for Larry Tunsil. It I agree. It I don't know why you don't at least attempt to go and get into the end zone. It doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, no, me neither whatsoever. So moving on to our next game that we had talked about last week was Pittsburgh, Tennessee. And this game looked like it was all Steelers up until the fourth quarter and the final drive by the Titans where they were at claw themselves all the way back in it, got back down to 27, 24 and big Ben throws his third interception of the game into the end zone. And so Titans get the ball back. Tannehill marches them all the way down in the field goal range. And Steven Goskowski misses the game tying field goal, which would have sent that game to overtime. But again, Sean, this game looked like it was all Pittsburgh, was all Pittsburgh in the first half and really into the third quarter as well. And it looks like it looked like Pittsburgh was going to salt it away with a drive there at the end. But Big Ben throws his third pick of the game. Titans get it back, but Goskowski misses the game tying field goal. Overall thoughts on this game? Yeah, you know, I mean, Ben kind of kept the Titans in this game. 
just kind of slinging around the field, throwing three picks. I think despite the fact – I mean, obviously Pittsburgh won. Despite the fact that they, they blew this big of a lead, I still think that they're really good, and I believe I picked them to win this game. Their defense is – I still believe in that defense is maybe the best in the league. But, you know, you got to look at the Titans side of this as well. Tannehill looked pretty good again. You know, he's kind of keeping himself afloat in the MVP race. One good thing I will say about Pittsburgh is that they were able to contain Derrick Henry as much as you can contain Derrick Henry. You know, 75 yards and a touchdown. But he didn't go buck wild like he has. I think that the my main takeaway from this game is that Pittsburgh is one of those upper echelon teams up there with probably Kansas City as the best in the AFC. And then I think Tennessee is just a tier below them. And that's not to discount the Titans whatsoever because Derrick Henry can take over a game at any second. A.J. Brown can take over a game at any second. I mean, he had 153 yards in the touchdown this week. But I think as a whole, the Steelers were just a better football team this week. I agree. Yeah, because um, I think – really on both sides of the ball besides, um, you know, Big Ben throwing those three picks, which if I'm not mistaken, I'm pretty sure two of them, including the one at the very end, were tipped. I mean, granted, he did throw him into, I think the very last one even, he threw into like triple coverage or something like that. Um, but yeah, I really think on both sides of the vault, both sides of the ball, Pittsburgh feels extremely complete. Um, I think Big Ben does enough for that offense to, you know, keep them afloat, keep them in football games. Um, James Conner had another pretty good week this week at 20 carries for 82 yards. And I think uh, a big talking point really on that Steelers offense was kind of the, um, I wouldn't say changing of the guard, but kind of how different dudes in the wide receiver spot stepped up for Pittsburgh. Juju Smith-Schuster had another pretty good week this week nine receptions 85 yards but the huge one you got to talk about is Deontay Johnson dude got into the end zone two times for them uh had nine receptions as did Smith Schuster for 80 yards so just missed uh his clip of 85 yards um but then another thing is Chase Claypool was MIA this week one reception for negative two yards yeah I mean like I've said the past couple episodes you know Pittsburgh don't count them out to have some random receiver have a good game not that Deontay Johnson's a random receiver but you know it's your pick of the litter I mean we've seen Chase Claypool take over the past couple games and then he's as you said MIA against the Titans in their biggest game of the season thus far but Deontay Johnson just fills in for 80 yards and two touchdowns and Juju Smith-Schuster after not being the guy that everyone kind of billed him as as the number one receiver he had another decent game so I think the Steelers, as I've said, just have this kind of magic with wide receivers that I don't know what they do differently, but they do do it. And Deontay Johnson was just the next guy in line to have a monster game. Yeah, and I think on the other side of things, if you're looking at the Titans defense, I think um, Ryan Tannehill having A.J. Brown back, I think that's going to be huge for him down the road. Because, you know, sure, he's had Corey Davis. Sure, he's had Jonu Smith, who have had decently good years so far. But I think having A.J. Brown, I think, will be a good um, kind of like we've been talking about throughout the show. It would kind of be a good security blanket for him. I mean, shoot, he had 153 of the 220 yards that Ryan Tannehill threw for. So I think having A.J. Brown back will, um, will prove fruitful for that uh, Tennessee offense. 
So moving on to game number three that we talked about last week, it was the game that was supposed to be Sunday night, but throughout the week got flexed into a Sunday afternoon game was the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the Las Vegas Raiders. And Brady and the Bucs came in and just absolutely laid it on Derek Carr's Raiders and ended up winning that game 45-20. to Brady threw for 369 yards, four touchdowns, easily his best game of the year, 88.1 QBR. And Derek Carr didn't play too bad either. He did throw one interception um, over 284 yards and 24 completions. Um, but, John, I mean, you had this one on the – you hit the nail on the head on this one last week. Um, you had Tampa Bay. I had Las Vegas. Um, give me your thoughts on this one. Not that any listener of the show would know this, but before the season, I was of the opinion – I didn't think the Bucks were going to be – this team that everyone was booing them as you know Brady was coming off the worst year of his career Gronkowski coming out of retirement I didn't think they would get practically anything out of him and they didn't for the first couple weeks and I thought that this defense might take a regression because defenses on a year-to-year basis aren't very reliable they had their ebbs and flows but I seem to be wrong and if I'm being completely honest with you the Buccaneers might be the best team in the NFC Brady's playing lights out I mean you don't have Godwin for hopefully just one week but you still have other guys that have been contributing quite a bit you know Ronald Jones has broken out a little Leonard Fournette has done Leonard Fournette things but on the defensive side of the ball you have Devin White who is getting better. Levante David is one of the best and most underrated linebackers in all football. I will be happy to admit that I was wrong about the Buccaneers and they dominated this game, but I will give a little bit of credit to the Raiders because as much as Tampa Bay dominated this game, this was a pretty close game up until the fourth quarter. I mean, Tampa Bay scored 21 points in the fourth quarter. This was as tight of a game as you would have liked to play if you're Las Vegas. So you got to give a little credit where credit's due, but I just think that Tampa Bay is the best team in the NFC right now. Bringing out all the hot takes tonight. I like it. Um, yeah, I I was, I think, um, impressed because, um, you know, I did predict last week that I thought Derek Carr was going to play um, well against the Bucks defense. I think he played about as well as he could. Um, again, throwing for those 284 yards, only through one pick. They get sacked three times, and that brings up a point that I want to talk about. And it was the fact that the Raiders offensive line um, got pretty much zero practice in this week with all the COVID stuff that they were going in or that they were going through. And um, they got four of their starters back throughout the week, but didn't bring back one of their best ones in Trent Brown. Um, and I don't know, Sean. I feel like, you know, you get no practice considering any circumstances. I think that's this is kind of a recipe for disaster, I would say. Yeah, you know, especially against this Tampa Bay line with Shaquille Barrett and Jason Pierre-Paul and even Nick Dominican Sue. When you're going up against a line like that and you don't have your stud tackle in Trent Brown, a guy that you gave a ton of money to, it's going to be hard to scheme around that no matter who you are, even John Gruden, who we were told and who's billed as kind of this offensive guru, it's going to be hard even for him to scheme around not having a healthy line. Yeah, definitely. And I think offensive line is, in my mind at least, come to be one of the most underrated positions, I think, in the NFL, even as a Bengals fan. 
I've come to realize how effective a good offensive line is, um, not only for your quarterback, but for your entire offense as a whole. Moving on to game number four, which I'm actually going to jump ahead to the Monday night game before we talk about the last one, which was arguably the best game of the week in Seahawks Cardinals. I'm going to talk about Bears Rams next. Um, 24-10 Rams with the win. They moved to five and two on the year in the absolutely stacked NFC West division, whose team in last place right now has four wins. Uh, Bears dropped to five and two. And I don't know, Sean, their offense just did not look good this week in Los Angeles. My friend, this is what I like to call vindication. I said last week that the Bears, despite being five and one, were not a good football team. And it turns out that when you have an offense that cannot move the football, no matter how good your defense is, you're not going to be a good football team in today's league. No defense does not win championships anymore. David Montgomery, who they drafted a couple years ago, supposed to be a guy that they were hoping would take, take the leap. 14 rushes for 48 yards. Allen Robinson, who is a guy they gave a ton of money to, is one of the, one of the better receivers in all football. Only 70 yards on four catches. Nick Folson threw a touchdown. Their only touchdown was a defensive touchdown. Uh, he threw two picks today – or, sorry, on Sunday. <laughs> There's not much to say about this team. I know they were 5-1. and one, But at a certain point when you get to the meaty part of your schedule and you're playing legitimately good playoff-bound teams or potentially playoff-bound teams, you have to play offense. And – Matt Nagy, for as much as people wanted to praise him his first year with Trubisky, Trubisky made no progress, you know. And he has this weird obsession with Cordero Patterson that I, for the life of me, cannot figure out. When Cordero Patterson is a big part of your offense, it's not a good offense. I'll end my rant on the Bears and say that and talk about the Rams for for a second. I think Daryl Henderson should be getting the bulk of the carries in Los Angeles. I think that he has the potential to be really good. And I know that McVay likes to use the committee. He has Cam Akers, who we just drafted, and Malcolm Brown. But I think Henderson deserves to get the bulk of the carries there. And then as for Jared Goff, I think what we've learned so far from his career is that he's just going to be a streaky guy. He's going to be up and down. You know, he had he was in the MVP conversation for a little while uh, the year they went to the Super Bowl, if I'm not mistaken. But I don't know if that's just who he truly is. I think it's going to be a lot of up and down. You know, you'll get... This, this week's game, where he was kind of a game manager, 219 yards and two touchdowns, or he'll get last week's game against the 49ers, where he looks like a disaster. So I think McVay has the ability to scheme up that offense well enough to keep them in the hunt in a loaded division. But I don't know that Goff is a guy who's going to be consistent week in, week out. And I think it's funny what you say about David Montgomery because I actually follow this account called Non-Contact or No-Contact College Football. And every time the Bears are playing, you know, specifically in a primetime game, they always tweet out this picture uh, from David Montgomery, a graphic that ESPN put up uh, from when he was playing at Iowa State. And it, it shows that he's a running back Frankenstein, quote-unquote, and says he's got the feet of Saquon Barkley, the vision of Le'Veon Bell, the strength of Ezekiel Elliott, and the athleticism of, of Sonny Michelle. Again, no context college football account, so I'm not going to give any context either. Just going to throw that out there. And, yeah, I totally agree with what you say about Cordero Patterson, too. I mean, I don't understand. How can a dude have three carries for one yard as a wide receiver? That I mean, huh? Come on, Matt Nagy. 
Um, but yeah, I personally think the Bears, I think they could very easily go from five and one to five and four, if not worse, within the next two weeks as they got the Saints and the Titans on deck. And yeah, I think they will somehow, some way sneak their way into the playoffs in the NFC. And yeah, like I said, somehow, some way. And then, yeah, I like what you were saying about the Rams too. I'm going to bring up one thing and ask one question before we move on to the next game, which actually does involve two NFC West teams. But you talk about how the Rams are, you know, playing in this loaded NFC West. And with the extended playoff format, theoretically, all four teams in the NFC West could make the playoffs. Do you think that happens? Probably not. I think at some point, these teams will start to eat each other alive. I mean, you already had the Cardinals take down the Seahawks last week. And then this upcoming week, you have Seattle and San Francisco coming up. I think it will be difficult to get all four teams into the playoffs, especially when you consider that one team has to come out of the NFC East and you have two playoff teams in the South, in my opinion, in Tampa Bay and New Orleans. And even maybe in the North, depending on the Bears and what they can do, I personally don't see that happening. But I think it will be a very hard-fought race, and I don't think that all four teams can get in. Yeah, I certainly get your point as far as the NFC South. I think there's no way that the Saints and the Bucks don't get in. I think those are two easy playoff teams there. And yeah, I, I you know, the Bears maybe with their five wins that they're at right now can find their way to sne- or can find their way into the playoffs. Um, but let's go ahead and move on to the last game that we talked about last week. And that was Seattle, Arizona. Easily the best game of the week. The game that was supposed to be a Sunday afternoon game, but because of the Raiders COVID situation got flexed into the Sunday night slot. And that was an amazing game. You know, it wasn't a back and forth game, which one might think that it was kind of looking at the final score and seeing that this game went into overtime. Finished 37-34 Cardinals. Cardinals winning on a game-winning field goal by Zane Gonzalez after he missed the game-winning field goal on the previous drive before Russell Wilson ever so graciously gave the ball directly back to the Cardinals on a great interception by Isaiah Simmons. Kind of give me your thoughts on this one. To be completely honest, I tweeted it a couple times. I was convinced that Seattle was going to win that game, especially after Cliff Kingsbury iced his own kicker and Zane Gonzalez made the attempt in which Cliff Kingsbury called timeout and then missed the next attempt. I was convinced that Russell Wilson was going to go down and win this game, and they did, but an offensive penalty on David Moore took back a long DK Metcalf touchdown. This game was a lot of fun, for sure, and I think that a lot of Kyler Murray and Russell Wilson games in the future are going to be a lot of fun because they are two very fun quarterbacks. But this also was, I think, eye-opening to a lot of people because you could kind of see that the Seahawks, despite being undefeated going to this game, were extremely flawed. Their defense is not good. I mean, you had two 50-yard rushers in this game, and that was without Kenyon Drake. Kyler Murray threw three touchdowns and 360 yards. DeAndre Hopkins, 10 catches. This offense isn't good. And I think that while Russell Wilson is a magician and he's going to keep them in games no matter what because he's Russell Wilson and the offense is loaded, I think the defense is going to be something that could potentially hold them back, especially in the playoffs against a team like Tampa Bay, who can put up points with anyone and has a really good defense. 
or Green Bay, who, while their defense isn't good, they could potentially beat you in a shootout. So I think they need to get that figured out quickly, or else this is something that could keep happening to them, where their defense gets so tired that they allow teams like this to come back. Yeah, and it you know, you said earlier that defenses don't win championships in this league anymore, but obviously you need to have at least a capable defense that can keep your offense in these types of games, like you're kind of talking about. Because um, I was even talking about it with a friend who's a Raiders fan, and we were kind of relating to each other that defense can definitely be your best offense sometimes. Because, you know, if you've got a team backed up third and long inside like the 20 or something like that, and they convert a, you know, critical third down, you know, that's, that's backbreaking for your offense because your offense, you know, sitting down there on the sidelines, they're looking at it and say, okay, we got third and long, we'll get the ball back. We'll probably get decently good field position. And then you see your, you see your defense give up, you know, like a third and long or something like that in that position. Like, I don't know. I just feel like that's just extremely demoralizing for an offense, even if it's as good of an offense as the Seattle Seahawks are. Yeah. I mean, look at the Kansas city Chiefs last year. They, they didn't have a great defense or even an arguably good defense. You could probably say they were an average defense, but they were able to have that bend, but don't completely break mentality or capability to them that the Seahawks just don't have. And yeah, defense is definitely something that can help you, but it's just not going to be, it can't be your focal point. And it also can't be the worst part of your team to that extent. Like your offense can be better than your defense is as a unit, but you can't have a defense that bad and expect to win games. They have to be somewhat competent. Yeah, and I agree with you there totally and completely. And I think obviously this wasn't the defense, but I think there's a, there's kind of a key point in this game that I kind of want to touch on that ultimately kind of ended up allowing – Arizona to get back into this football game and it was you know late in the fourth quarter within um close to within three minutes left in the game um Zane Gonzalez knocked through a 52-yard field goal would have cut the deficit down to 34-27 but instead it was nullified by an unsportsmanlike conduct penalty which is a 15-yarder and then a few plays later Christian Kirk gets into the end zone to pull the Cardinals within three and I know the Cardinals did end up getting the ball back on the next possession, obviously only needing three points to send the game to overtime. But I'm going to ask you, if that penalty isn't committed and it's just a field goal, do you think the Cardinals still win this game or even send it to OT? Mm, I honestly don't know the answer to that for you, even just in a hypothetical standpoint. Because, one, you look at what Kyler Murray was able to do to that defense. And, two, you look at Russell Wilson's ability to win games that he shouldn't to be completely honest with you. So I, it could have gone either way. I, that's kind of a tough one, but and I, I hate to not give you a legitimate answer on it, but that is just kind of my answer. And, you know, I just kind of threw that question out there, just kind of curious to see what you say. But I, you know, I think when it's all said and done, I personally think the same thing. Um, you know, yeah, it was a crucial penalty. Yeah, it led to four more points being put on the scoreboard as opposed to just the three. Um, but I, you know, I think it's hard to answer that question. Um, and yeah, you know, if that penalty is not committed, you know, maybe Kyler Murray still does get the ball back and does tear through Seattle's defense like he was doing throughout that game. Or, you know, maybe Russell Wilson gets the ball back and he just 
runs the clock out. I mean, who knows? But Yeah, and this is the time of the podcast where I would like to bring up one of the most important football tweets of all time, and that would be Kevin Clark's tweet about the Seahawks where he said the Seahawks have literally never played a normal game. So just keep that in mind anytime you watch the Seahawks. Yeah, because I can I could easily think of like just at least I think five like off the top of my head because I think, you know, fail Mary. I think it probably started there. Fail Mary, shoot, the Super Bowl where they beat Denver, the Super Bowl where they lost to New England. I'm trying to think of it. The one they just played in um, I think was definitely a little bit strange. Ooh, can I think of one more? The Niners game in week 17 last year where shouts to uh, Dre Greenlaw stopped the game-winning play at the goal line to lose the division for Seattle. Yeah, okay. And I can actually, I guess, and I know you probably don't want to talk about this one, The I guess you could say the Richard Sherman game too in the playoffs, you know, a few years back. But, yeah, all those games, yeah, absolutely crazy. I'm glad you actually mentioned that too because I was I was going to mention that myself. So that's all for this past week's games. And moving into the five games we want to preview this week, I want to first and foremost t- talk about a team that we've already talked about tonight on the pod and that is the Las Vegas Raiders they're coming off the spanking that Tom Brady gave to them in Vegas this past Sunday and they're on the road on the east coast playing the Cleveland Browns and Baker Mayfield who picked up a win somehow once again against my Cincinnati Bengals 37-34 I'm thinking man Baker gets the ball back a minute left I know he'd been playing well that game but I'm thinking man they got no timeouts at the very worse, they go down and kick a game-tying field goal. No. But that's neither here nor there. Browns, Raiders in Cleveland next week. It's a 10 a.m. start. Sean, I know you wanted to talk about Baker all show long, but what do you think about his upcoming matchup this week against the Raiders? Yeah, look, this is honestly one of the tougher games of the week to pick because as much as I love Baker and as well as he played last week, this is potentially a game where he kind of has one of his down periods because he's an up and down quarterback and I will freely admit that. So this is a tough game for me to pick. And, you know, there are factors such as the Raiders defense isn't that great or do the Raiders get their offensive line back or does Miles Garrett completely wreck what is left of it. So this is this is a tough game to pick, especially, you know, with Odell Beckham being out for the year, it seems like, and Baker's down another target. I'm very excited about this game. And to be honest with you, I am kind of on the fence as to where I'm going to go at this point. But I might lean Browns after what Baker did last week. And it, this could come back and bite me in the butt, given Baker's entire career. But I think I'm going to roll with the Browns and what Baker did last week against the Raiders and their compromised offensive line and their subpar defense, we'll say. I'm with you on that one, that this is probably the hardest of the five games that we'll be picking this week. I Because I think, like you said, the Baker cycle is real, um, has a good game, uh, gets mad at his haters, then collapses in a game later down the road and then proves his haters wrong again. But I think that normally happens against teams that are slightly better than the Raiders. And I think with the Browns, you know, 
coming off of this nice come from behind victory against the Bengals. I think they'll carry that momentum back home with them. And I'm going to ride the train with you on this one. I'm going to go Cleveland as well. Uh, Raiders big time travel, especially after getting dismantled like they did and Browns have yet to lose at home this year. So uh, I think I'm going to go Cleveland in this one too. Um, it says they're only favored by two and a half. I think they'll probably cover that. I'll, I'll say they win by at most a touchdown. Yeah, I'll agree with you on that. I, I definitely think they could cover that two and a half point spread. One thing I do want to mention about what you said about the Baker cycle, and this week was another vindication for me as Baker threw five touchdowns against the Bengals. And yes, I know it was the Bengals. However, however, some people's some of NFL Twitter's MVP and Josh Allen threw zero against the Jets. So I'll take the win on that one. Just had to sneak that in there. And I I hate that you had to, too, because that was a double hit against me. Because that was against my team. And then Josh Allen, that's my fantasy quarterback in both of my leagues this year. So I don't, I, I'm not going to say I appreciate that one too much. But, again, that's here nor there. Moving on, next game. Um, two AFC North teams. This could arguably be one of the best games of the week down in Baltimore where the Ravens come in at five and one and will host the only undefeated team left in the NFL, the Pittsburgh Steelers at six. and zero. uh, Pittsburgh snuck away with a 27, 24 victory against the Titans this past week. And the Ravens will be coming off of a bye. And this is a rivalry. As old as time, Sean, Steelers, Ravens had so many good games throughout the years. You know, I can think of the one off the top of my head, the Antonio Brown game uh, on around Christmas, I want to say, that clinched the Steelers a division that one year. But how about this game here? 6-0 and Steelers, 5-1 and Ravens. Baltimore favored by 3.5. Who do you like here? Yeah, I'm going to roll the Steelers again in this one. You know, earlier I said I think it's them and the Chiefs alone at the top in the AFC. And while I do trust Greg Roman to cook something up against the Steelers' defense coming off of a bye, I just think that the Steelers are a bit more complete as a team, which is crazy to say after what Lamar did last year and Ben being hurt. But I just think that the Steelers have, again, maybe the best defense in the league and an offense that – at the very worst, can keep them afloat in games like this, especially when, you know, we don't know what we're going to get from Greg Roman. And I assume it'll be a good game plan, but it might not be a shootout. It might be just a ground and pound type of game. I I don't know what to expect because it could go either way. But I will say I will take the Steelers in this one. And I think that the Ravens, that line is just because the Ravens are playing at home, and I'm not sure that home field matters much this year. So I will take the Steelers in this one. I think I'm going to go same camp as you because I think the Ravens, um, while Lamar Jackson can uh, do well through the air, obviously the ground game is where he excels at. And I think that's where the Ravens offense has been successful this year needless to say has been on the ground um and I think that's just a little too one-dimensional for my taste and I think a defense like the Steelers I think will be ready for that um because you know you don't have to worry as much you still have to worry but you don't have to worry as much about the threat through the air with Lamar Jackson and I think yeah I think Pittsburgh's defense is more than prepared for that and you know you saw the job that they did against Derrick Henry this past week like you said earlier contained him as about as well as they could 
Um, and yeah, I think I'm going to roll Pittsburgh with you here too. I'm, I'm probably in the, in the camp that this is going to be a low scoring game. I don't think it'll hit the over under at 47, but I think, and I, th- I still think it's going to be a close game, but yeah, I'm going to take Pittsburgh in this one too. Yeah. I'm smashing that under there's, there's little to no chance that this is a high scoring game. In my opinion, very likely will be a close game, a high scoring game. I kind of highly doubt it. So yeah, I'll smash the under in that for sure. So now moving on to the afternoon window of games, we move down to Chicago, where the Bears will be welcoming in the four and two Saints. Bears dropping to five and two after a Monday night loss to the Rams this past week, and the Saints picking up a close 27-24 victory against the Carolina Panthers and Teddy Bridgewater uh, this past Sunday. And there's a Bears team that we've talked about for the past two weeks now, Sean, and me and you were both vindicated, I think, on Monday night that the Bears aren't a very good football team. Do you think they stand a chance against Sean Payton's Saints this Sunday? (laughs) As much as I've hammered the Bears, I think if there's going to be a game in their next stretch that they can at least hang around in. I think it's going to be the Saints game. Breeze, I'll be completely honest, his arm looks completely shot. He does not look like the same Drew Breeze. The offense is not the same offense. Alvin Kamara is doing everything. And as I've said, the Bears offense is not good. But when you're going up against a team like the Saints with the compromised offense and all of the Michael Thomas drama that's going on. I think this is a game that they can at least keep it close in. I'm not going to pick them. I am going to roll with Sean Payton over Matt Nagy. But I do think this is a game that might look a little bit like that Chicago and Tampa Bay game from a couple Thursdays ago. Yeah, because I think that took, I mean, everybody by surprise. I think definitely in hindsight, too. That the Packers or that the Bucks, I should say, just absolutely walloped the Raiders and the Packers. And then you look at the game that happened three weeks ago, how they lost 20 to 19 to the Bears, who just lost 24 to 10 to the Rams. But yeah, I think it's going to be tough for Drew Brees to operate without Michael Thomas and now Emmanuel Sanders. But I think he's still got enough dudes to go to such as uh, Jared Cook, Deontay Harris, and Marcus Callaway that I think he'll still be able to make something happen against this Bears team. I'm going to go Saints with you too, but I, and I do think that this is probably the game with the highest potential for the Bears to keep it close because then they go on the road, if I'm not mistaken, against the Titans the following week. But I don't know. I foresee the Saints winning this one by double digits. I think Drew Brees, um, I think Drew Brees, plays as he's done all season I think he plays competently enough with the wide receiver core that he has um and you know I think Alvin Kamara obviously still going to get his due on offense um but I don't know the Bears offense just looked way too bad for me this past Monday for me to have any confidence in them scoring points yeah you know um I'll have to disagree with you I on the the double digit thing I do think the Saints are going to win, but I think this is going to be another very low-scoring game. But to your point about the Bears' offense, it it looks so hard for them to move the ball. It looks like every play is max effort, and that's just not something you can do against a team like the Saints, no matter how compromised they are. I think it'll be a close game, but 
an offense like that is not some a recipe to beat a Sean Payton and Drew Brees led team. Yeah, and I'm I'm in that boat with you there. So I we've agreed so far in the first three games: Browns over Raiders, Steelers over Ravens, Saints over Bears. So moving on to what's probably going to be the best afternoon game of the three afternoon games that there are coming up this Sunday, and a game that I know that you might have just a little bit of bias in, Sean is the 49ers coming off a dominating win against the New England Patriots. They are traveling all the way from the East Coast to all the way on the West Coast to play against the Seattle Seahawks coming off of that heartbreaking overtime loss to the Cardinals on Sunday night, uh, 37-34. Seahawks travel back home to get San Francisco. And once upon a time, this was a NFC West that had a t- had their champion make it to the playoffs with only seven wins in the 2009-2010 season. But now the 49ers sit in last place with four wins, four and three. And so, Sean, like I said, I know you're going to have a little bit of bias in this game, but what are you looking forward to the most and who do you got in this one? Yeah, <laughs> bias aside, I think this is going to be a really close game, just like every other Seattle-San Francisco game. As I was saying at the top of the show, the Debo Samuel injury is going to be huge in this game. And I'm really interested to see what Kyle Shanahan does to scheme around that and to scheme touches to George Kittle and Brandon Ayuk. I think that those two are the recipe to beat the Seahawks if they can. Now, the issue is the defense. And you're getting Kwan Williams back this week. Emmanuel Mosley has been playing pretty well. But you're still out Sherman. You're still out Quan Alexander. And the the two safeties, Jimmy Ward and Kwaski Tart, have been practicing, I believe, but not fully healthy against Russell Wilson is going to be is going to present an issue, I think. You know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna chicken out and I will uh, not name a winner for this game. <laughs> okay. I mean, I, I'm with you on that one. I mean, it is it is a game with your team in it. You know, I know College Game Day does it sometimes when Kirk Herbstreit's broadcasting a game and he doesn't pick what team he thinks is going to win. Man, so you're going to leave me all out here on an island in a game where I have no idea who's going to win either. Because, you know, even with the injuries on the offensive side of the ball for the 49ers, I still think, and we saw it this past week uh, with the Seahawks against Cardinals, that the Seahawks defense can't stop anything. But is that enough with what you guys are missing in order to take down Seattle at home? Um, and as you said, home field advantage. So if I, I, I will say this, if this was normal circumstances, I would take Seattle. I still think it'd be a close game, but I think just their home field advantage, I think is just too much for teams, obviously. So I would definitely go Seattle there. But I don't know. I think we've seen just over the past couple weeks now um, against the Cardinals and also against the the Vikings as well, this is a very exposable Seattle Seahawks team. I still think they're tops, not the best team in the NFC, but I think at least top three team in the NFC. But I don't know. I, I think I think like I've been kind of mentioning, I think the Seahawks team, like obviously especially their defense, is exposable enough that – I think the Niners offense can do enough to score them those points and keep them in the game, even against Seattle's offense. And I can kind of foresee this game going rather similar to how the Seahawks Cardinals game went this past week. With that being said, I think I'm going to go San Francisco. 
I don't know. I just think Seattle's defense just doesn't do enough for them at all in order to keep them in these games against competent offenses. Yeah, that makes complete sense. And I trust Kyle Shanahan to look at the Seattle defense and find their weaknesses and scheme an offense for the week that exposes those weaknesses. However, I think the biggest question heading into this game is does Kyle Shanahan trust Jimmy Garoppolo enough to let him sling it around and try to beat Russell Wilson in the shootout? If that's the case, if this game ends up being a shootout, which 49ers Seahawks games are always different. We don't know what's going to be happening. But as I was saying, does Kyle Shanahan trust Garoppolo enough to let him sling the ball around? Because it's been evident at times that he doesn't trust him. He doesn't want him to be throwing these backbreaking interceptions that he threw last year that he's thrown this year. So I think this game hinges on Shanahan's ability to trust the quarterback that he paid to go and win this game for him. And I'm definitely going to agree with you with that because, you know, I think Garoppolo this um, past week against New England proved that it really last two weeks and last two wins that you guys have had. I mean, shoot, nearly threw for 300 yards and only missed on five throws. Granted, two of those throws being interceptions, but, you know, kept them, kept the offense rolling to the beat of their own drum, basically. You know, he's, he's not, you know, on a game-to-game basis asking him to just absolutely dominate the stat sheet every single time. But I think, like you said, specifically this week, this could very well be a shootout over under 54, and I think it will be. And I think if Jimmy can keep up with Seattle's offense, I think that they're more than capable of winning this football game. As for last week against New England, one of those interceptions was on a Hail Mary going into halftime, I believe, into the end zone. So that one I'm not going to put on Jimmy Garoppolo, the decision maker, because I'm sure Kyle Shanahan told him just thrown to the end zone but just to keep piggybacking off what I was saying and off what you were saying it's does Shanahan believe that Garoppolo is capable of winning these shootouts and you know we did see it last year in the Saints game it that was a shootout in New Orleans but it seems since then and since week one that Shanahan has lost a lot of trust in his quarterback and I keep hammering this trust point just because when you watch the 49ers it's so clear that he doesn't want him throwing it down the field. We saw that in this in the Rams game. Garoppolo hardly threw it down the field. So I think that's the biggest thing to watch. And the game hinges on that, which is why I copped out a little bit picking the game because it's the 49ers against the Seahawks. And to be completely honest with you, I'm just not sure. I'm not sure what the game plan is. I'm not sure if Shanahan trusts him enough. And yeah, that's pretty much it. It's And 49ers Seahawks games are always unpredictable so I don't know what we're gonna get out of that game I I definitely see what you're saying with those Niners Seahawks games I mean shoot we talked about two of them earlier as far as the Seahawks not playing in a normal football game with you know the Richard Sherman game and then the week 17 game last year where Niners defense was able to stop Seattle at the one and moving on to the last game that we will be picking this week it's the Sunday night game and, you know, we, you talk about the 49ers being in last place in their division at four and three. 
you look at the two teams that will be playing this Sunday night in the Eagles and the Cowboys, that features one of two teams that is in first place, and the two teams that will be playing have combined for four wins. Eagles are 2-4-1, and one, hold a slim lead over the Washington football team and the Cowboys for first place, both those teams sitting at 2-5, and five, and then the Giants just sitting one win back at 1-6. and six. They get the Bucks on Monday night. But, I mean, sure, coming into the season, this, this looked like it could have been a – a highly anticipated Sunday night football game, Cowboys-Eagles, you know, you got Dak Prescott, you got the Eagles and Carson Wentz and, uh, you know, Miles Sanders and all those other weapons that the, Eagle, that the Eagles have on offense. But there isn't much really on either side of the ball going into this game. I mean, especially, you know, obviously you have Dak down for the Cowboys, but now even Andy Dalton in concussion protocol after the hit he took last week, um, against Washington and John Bostick, but I mean, somebody, I mean, I'm not going to say somebody has got to come out a winner in this game. That's not necessarily true, but assuming a team has an upper hand in this game, Sean, who do you think that team is? And why? First and foremost, I want to say that John Bostick should be suspended on that hit of Andy Dalton because it was completely egregious. Second of all, I think I'm going to pick the Eagles in this one with Dalton out. This means that Dallas is going to be playing Ben DiNucci at quarterback. James Madison University legend, Ben DiNucci. I think I'm going to roll with Carson Wentz and an extremely compromised offense over Ben DiNucci, despite him having all those weapons. Because as much heat as Carson Wentz has taken and as bad as he has been at times this year, Carson Wentz has shown the ability to keep them in games. He came back and won that Giants game. Yes, I know it was the Giants, but look, a week before that, he came back and almost tied the game against the Ravens. So I'm going to roll with the established quarterback, and either way you want to say he's established, depending on your opinion, I'm going to roll with the established quarterback over the rookie from an FCS school, as unfair as that might be. Yeah, I mean, now that you mentioned that, these are actually two FCS legends at starting quarterback here, and Ben DiNucci from uh, just this past year uh, just got drafted by the Cowboys, actually played in the FCS championship against North Dakota State, obviously without Carson Wentz, but with Trey Lance as their starting quarterback. Ben DiNucci, 204 yards, two touchdowns, and a pick um, in the 2020 defeat at the hands of the FCS powerhouse in the North Dakota State Bison. But, yeah, I think I'm in the same camp as you in this game. I think that Ben DiNucci's first start under the bright lights of Sunday night aren't exactly going to bode too well even with the weapons that he's got and, you know, Zeke Elliott, Amari Cooper, and CeeDee Lamb. And I think we've seen over the past few weeks that the Eagles have been able to play competently, even though they're 2-4-1. and one. You know, they came back against the Giants, granted the Giants last Thursday night, but then gave the Ravens a scare, easily could have tied up that game like you were kind of saying. And yeah, I'm going to roll Eagles here too. I see the spread seven and a half, Eagles favored. I, I think that they'll probably cover that. I think the Cowboys will be lucky to score two touchdowns in that game. Yeah, and you know, I will say for, if for whatever reason Dalton does end up playing in this game, if he clears the concussion protocol, I, I'd still probably take the Eagles. I think that the offense in Dallas is just so lackluster at this point. And you even see it with Ezekiel Elliott. I mean, he's fumbling all over the place. It's becoming a real problem for him. And the Eagles' defense is, at least that defensive line, is still good. They still have Fletcher Cox, Derek Barnett, those guys. So 
Yeah, I, either way, I'm with you. I think that the Eagles do cover this game because Dallas is just has just been so lifeless ever since Dak went down with that injury. And, yeah, you mentioned if Andy Dalton does play in this game. And coming from me, a Bengals fan, this game is on Sunday night. That's a primetime game. Does Andy Dalton win primetime games? No. So, yeah, I think either case, Ben DiNucci or Andy Dalton, I think Eagles got this one handily. Final thoughts on episode three of From the Shotgun? You know, not too many. I'm just glad we got in some uh, FCS football talk. The most got a (laughs) mention of the most dominant college football team in the past 10 years this is a pro fcs podcast i mean we'll make that 100 percent clear we were about it if it's fbs fcs i do actually want to kind of leave on just one note because you did mention in the beginning that the nevada football team has the best winning percentage in fbs right now at one and oh and i want to talk just real quick kind of have a little bonus prediction before we log off here they got a big game coming up this week They're traveling down to Vegas. They got the UNLV Rebels. UNLV looked awful this past week against San Diego State. Granted, a good San Diego State team. But this is a football podcast. Let's talk about it. Nevada and UNLV, who do you like in that game? Uh, First off, hashtag FUNLV. Secondly, um, through one game, Carson Strong is uh, apparently reading my Twitter and or my texts because I've been saying all year that he stinks. And he played a hell of a game against Wyoming and won them that game in overtime. So with that being said, Nevada. And they'll cover whatever the spread is because UNLV stinks. Uh, Yeah, UNLV looked god-awful this past Saturday against San Diego State. They scored, I think, one touchdown in the third quarter. They came out of the second half strong. Uh, I think they were down 24-0 entering halftime. But very easily should have been 31 nothing, if I'm not mistaken, because San Diego State tried to go for a half-ending touchdown, but it got overturned upon further review, but it was clear and obvious that that was a touchdown. But, yeah, I'm with you there, too. I think Carson Strong, he looked great, uh, specifically in the first half um, against Wyoming. And, yeah, I think if he plays, um, he doesn't even need to play as well as he did against Wyoming. I think if he just plays competently, I think Nevada's got – more than what it takes to beat a very, very not-so-good UNLV team. So I'm a roll pack in this one, too. Nevada's favored by 13-and-a-half. I do think they will cover that one. It's the first home game of the year for UNLV under the bright lights of Allegiant Stadium. Um, yeah, roll pack in that. Yeah, and one more thing. Um, I know that uh, Cole Turner and Romeo were kind of the dudes – uh, this past Saturday, but I do want to say that Elijah Cooks is a legit stud, and I think he's someone to look at in the future as, you know, kind of a flyer guy in the NFL draft. Yeah, Elijah Cooks made, I mean, one heck of a catch on Saturday. I mean, shoot, that was that was near an Odell Beckham Jr. style catch right there, that one-handed catch he had on the sideline. That was, that was something right there. But – yeah, as for Sean O'Leary, my co-host, I've been TJ Starbacker, and this has been episode three of From the Shotgun. We'll check back in with you guys again next week, and hopefully we went 5-0 and in our picks once again this week. And other than that, we'll talk to you guys next time.